I've got a confession to make. It's about Bayview Glen and how we do things here behind the scenes. I don't think anyone's talked about it before and it's been weighing on me, so I just want to come clean. Today is Thursday. You may be watching on Sunday or Friday or Tuesday, but right now it's Thursday. That's when we film the sermons. And the last time I was here speaking, it was January 28th, also a Thursday, if you were wondering. And a few days after filming, I got contacted by a friend of mine. He said that there's a puppy. It just got rescued by the Humane Society. It was badly abused. It's been starved. You can see all its ribs. When it broke out of its cage, it was mauled by three other dogs. So its face is all scarred and swollen. And he said, this puppy really needs a home. He asked if myself and my fiance, Becca, would be willing to keep this puppy. We thought about it for a solid 10 seconds. And we said yes, so we took the puppy in. But my fiance and I were not yet married, and so we are not yet living together either. And so I have the high privilege and honor of keeping the puppy at my place. And there's some ground rules for the puppy. His name is Tommy. Uh, The puppy is not allowed on the furniture, and the puppy is not allowed in the kitchen. He can't go on the furniture because his whole bathroom situation is not yet under control. He's kind of a loose cannon. And he can't go in the kitchen because he gets in the recycling and the garbage. He makes a huge mess and I'm worried he's going to eat something that'll be bad for him. Okay. Nevertheless, sometimes I come into the living room and I see him on the couch chewing on something he got from the kitchen. And I don't even have to say anything. I just look at him. I give him that look, that look. And he looks at me and he just drops like on the floor, head on the ground, looking up right? Full on knowing he is guilty. I have caught him in his wrongdoing. I have pinned him in his sin, if you will, okay? And so I take him, I give him time out in his crate, and that's the end of it. I am content to have uh, caught his wrongdoing and that he knows he was wrong, and that's the end of it. I'm not looking for a transformation and a genuine repentance from an animal, okay? Compare that to interactions that I have with Becca, okay? Uh, Before COVID, this is what would happen. She would say something like this. uh, Let's go out tonight and play board games with my friends. That's how she talks. And I'll say, no, that's dumb. Board games are stupid. I'm going to stay home and read a book. And she gives me that look, that, that look, right? And I know, oh, I've been caught in my wrongdoing, not that it's wrong to disagree, but shooting down ideas and insulting them, right? It's no good. She doesn't have to say anything, and I drop, like, like the puppy, uh, but metaphorically. I go into damage control mode. I say, hey, baby, hey, hey sugar booger, wh- why don't you tell me about, how about your day? How is work? Let's do emotions time. Uh, I will feel what you're feeling. We, we can sit on the floor. You like that, right? Uh, no, she's not going to let me off that easy. She says, no, I want to talk about this, what you just said. And I say, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's, let's just move on. She says, no, 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 no. I want to dig into this, talk about why what you said was hurtful and how we can circumvent this for the future. She is not content just to pin me in my wrongdoing. She's looking for more. This is also what Paul is doing here today. He's not just looking to pin us and point out our shortcomings. If he was trying to pin us, he would have done that weeks ago, back in chapter one. That was the last time I spoke. 
Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, I think. He gave the wide, expansive argument about why everyone is justly underneath God's wrath, the wrath of abandonment, giving us over to what we want. Later, Brandon shared what that wrath actually looks like, what are the ramifications of it, the implications of it. And last week, Pastor Lucas shared from chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, about how everyone failed to keep the law, whether it is the Jewish people who have the law that's written on stone tablets and parchment paper and scrolls, or the Gentiles who have the law written upon their hearts. Both groups have failed to keep God's law. This week, Paul is narrowing the scope, focusing specifically on the Jewish people. People that think maybe Paul has pointed out a shortcoming of theirs, maybe he's pinned us, but that fundamentally they're still in right standing with God. They don't need to worry about this judgment thing, right? People who might be reading the or hearing the the letter to the church in Rome and thinking, okay, man, you can move on with this. You've already pinned me. You've pointed this out. We don't need to talk about this judgment thing again and again and again. Maybe you're thinking that this Sunday morning. Why are you guys talking about judgment Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Paul is pleading with people who may have a false assurance of salvation that is not based on the person and work of Christ. And this is just as important for us today. This is a blind spot that even religious people are susceptible to, or only religious people, or especially religious people are susceptible to. And if this was a real blind spot, you see why it would be so important that he points it out. We think that I'm baptized, I went to church, I have a theology degree, I went to Bible college, I'm okay, bingo. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. Let's see what he has to say. Read along with me if you have your Bibles. I'm looking at Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17. It's just the two paragraphs. <clears throat> but if you call yourself a Jew, when it says, if you call yourself a Jew, just think of a member of God's covenant, if you identify as a member of God's covenant. So if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. This is where it gets good. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among, go to the other side, the Gentiles because of you. Paul's quoting the book of Isaiah here. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded Uh, Pardon me. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? You see the flip that's happening here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Almost done. Stick with me. For no one is a Jew, this means member of God's covenant, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is Romans 2, 17 to 29. Just to refresh again, last week in chapter 2, Lucas shared, Pastor Lucas, from verses 1 to 16, showing that both groups, both the Jewish people and the Gentiles, are both justly recipients of God's wrath, and that the Jewish audience can't assume that they are no less under God's wrath than the Gentiles themselves. Why? Because the Jews have received the written law, and even those who don't have this written law, they have a moral law which is written upon their hearts. Yes, okay. Now, Paul, he anticipates a response, an objection from this hypothetical opponent that he's having this dialogue with. He imagines the Jewish reader saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Surely you can't say that we are no different than the Gentile outsiders. I mean, we have the law, which is God's revelation, and we also have circumcision, which is what? It's evidence of the covenant. So we have this threefold bundle of privileges. We have the law, we have circumcision, we have the covenant, and these are indicative of us being God's special people. This guarantees us immune from his wrath. How can you write these things off? Paul is responding to these. Verses 17 to 24 He's responding specifically to people who think they have righteousness before God because of the law. And in the following verses, the second paragraph, he's responding to people who think that they have righteousness before God because of their circumcision. And in both of these paragraphs, without writing off the value of law or without writing off the value of circumcision, Paul is claiming this. These associations have no value unless the law is obeyed. It's what one does that is the critical determining feature of one's identity. So you could say the proof is in the pudding. Talk is cheap. And if we are judged according to how we obey the law, we are all in trouble. We need a righteousness that is manifested apart from the law. This is the cycle we've been going through every single week. Hey, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And this week is responding to people who would say, yep, those people... They really need Jesus. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You too. You too need Jesus. Please don't think that all of these other good things that you have replace your need for the blood of Christ. If you are still dead in your sins, all these other things are like putting makeup on a corpse. But I'm I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's look specifically at what Paul says in this first paragraph responding to claims about righteousness based upon the law. To do so, he kind of primes his uh, hypothetical opponent by citing 11 different Jewish pious claims. The word piety, it just means an adherence to one's sacred duties above all else. I think there's eight verbs, 11 in total. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, come on now, we're good. Rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and to prove what is excellent because you are instructed, oh, she's dying on me, instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Wow, there's an extra in there, just for fun, no charge. <laughs> Paul cites these things, these good things. These are not trivial things. Let's, let's pause for a moment. The law is not some side thing that's of no consequence, right? If, if the creator of the universe came to you and revealed to you the structure of being itself, if he mapped out the fabric of reality, the moral landscape of the world, of how you are to interact with God, with other people, and with creation itself, and if a failure to do so resulted in judgment, if this was revealed to you, that would be a big deal, right? You would then have a responsibility to share this, to teach, to instruct, and to model, okay? So Paul points out these good things, and then he responds with five questions, rhetorical questions, that are meant to point out the hypocrisy. Uh, number one, while, uh, pardon me, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. These things that he was referring to, uh, people would kind of understand the references. It was common knowledge at the time that many of the religious leaders left loopholes in their business dealings for some refined stealing. The Talmud itself referred to three of their most illustrious rabbis committing adultery. And while they would have um, abhorred idolatry and blaspheming God's name, it was common that they had robbed the temples of God's glory themselves. This is what Cranfield calls subtle forms of sacrilege. So in just a few sentences, just these sentences here, Paul bats away all of their claims to right standing with God based upon the law. He crushes them like styrofoam cups. They failed to keep the law and they still were in need of redemption. So possession of the law is a good thing. It is a great blessing. But reliance on this possession for righteousness was the problem. A similar point is made by the prophet Micah after he had just rebuked the leaders of Israel. He says this in chapter 3, verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. So intellectual and spiritual proficiency risked generating false pride. And thank goodness we aren't like this today. <laughs> but the problem, twice repeated here, is a pride that comes from having the law itself. And we today, we could recognize the, the foolishness of this type of thinking, the silliness here, but actually this blade cuts both ways. Is this not true for us today? It's easy to imagine that because we know so much more about God's word than perhaps even uh, the Jewish audience Paul was referring to or the people around us today, that we are in better standing with God because of it. Like, I know so much more about God's word compared to my friends, right? I got stacks of theology books and we can strut into church. We can walk into our Bible study or into Bible college and still be at risk of having hearts of stone. So the very privileges and blessings that were made to produce saints run the risk of producing self-centered, self-deceived, and self-righteous jerks. Can I say that? 
Is this sounding familiar? Is this starting to come into focus? Do you know of any Christian theologians or pastors or speakers or apologists that have had moral failings? Our familiarity with holy things should never lead to spiritual presumption. So you have studied theology. You know God's word. That is great. That is an honor. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. And Paul is not writing those things off. Right? The question is, do you know Jesus? I can study a lot about the Queen of England, but I don't know her. Do you know Christ? Let's not spend a lot of time on this point. There's a lot to cover here. Paul is warning about a false confidence based upon religious knowledge. That's the first paragraph. Let's move on to the second paragraph. This is danger number two, a false confidence based upon religious association. I'm going to read this paragraph again. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. I'll underline that. That's a lovely sound. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? This is an inference that would have made people like spit out their coffee when they heard this. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. I'm going to stop there. It's important when we're reading this that we don't lose the message because we're so bamboozled by uh, the historical and cultural trappings of the text. Paul is writing to a people who are in a particular time, in a particular culture, in a particular place. Okay? And at that time and at that place, circumcision was commanded by God as a means of signifying their covenant with him. And even in the last couple hundred years, uh, right before Paul wrote this, circumcision became an even stronger theme and element of Jewish self-understanding. I'm referring to the Maccabean revolt. It was an extremely important part of their own self-understanding as a people. But if, as we just saw, that religious knowledge is no substitute or guarantee of righteousness, then neither is this. Circumcision itself, uh, it's not a magical ceremony. It's not a lucky charm. It's not fire insurance. It It is no substitute for obedience. Rather, circumcision was an indication of one's commitment to obedience. Yet, the Jewish people had an almost, I want to use this term delicately, an almost superstitious, confidence in the salvific power of circumcision. There are different rabbinic epigrams or proverbs that state these. I'll read two. Circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. Gehenna is another term for hell. And circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. So how does Paul counter this false confidence that comes from it? Paul does not deny the divine origin of circumcision, but rather he says that those who are circumcised, he says it right here, obey the law. That's why it's a value. It's only a value if it produces obedience. It's actually required by it. And Paul makes 
the inverse statement. He flips the inference on its head. If you have it, but break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the law, his uncircumcision is regarded as circumcision. So he kind of flips the equation on its head. Let me simplify it. We could put it two ways. Circumcision minus obedience results in an inauthentic covenant membership. And uncircumcision plus obedience results in an authentic covenant membership. It's something like a wedding ring between God and his people. Think about it this way. You're not married because you have a ring. You have a ring because you're married, right? And so Paul's saying that circumcision is of value if you keep the covenant, but if you don't keep the requirements of the law itself, then it's as useless as a wedding ring on an adulterer's finger. So is this starting to come into focus now? This, this isn't about Jewish people and circumcision. It is, but it's about so much more. Paul is comparing external manifestations and rites and symbols versus the internal state of affairs. Here's another comparison you could make now. You could compare circumcision and the old covenant with baptism and the new covenant. The true Christian, like the true Jew that's referred to here, is one who is transformed inwardly. And the true baptism, like the true circumcision, is an inward transformation that is manifested outwardly. So baptism does not save you. Rather, baptism is an outward manifestation of the transformation God does inwardly. It's the washing away of sin and the receiving of the Spirit. And it would be a grave mistake to confuse the outward symbols, rites, and acts with the internal transformation that happens. God desires an inward, the language he uses even in the Old Testament, is an inward circumcision of the heart. He says this in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. <laughs> Paul's saying this, hey, you know a lot. You've got the external relations, but do you know him? Do you love him? Because if you don't, all this other stuff, it can't help you. If you don't know Christ, you're still in need of a savior. Your degree can't save you. Your books can't save you. Your church membership and tithing, it can't save you. Your Christian concerts and conferences and t-shirts, they cannot save you. It can't fix your heart and it can't save your soul. And this is the danger of religious comfort. You can be around this stuff your whole life and still not know Christ. And this stuff scares me. I don't, I don't like talking about it. I don't like thinking about it, but it would be dishonest of me to just glaze over this and run the risk of not telling you the truth. Jesus says this himself, perhaps in what is for me one of the scariest passages of the Bible itself. He says this in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now we should read this and be troubled. 
if religious knowledge and religious symbols and association do not save us, we are in trouble. If our righteousness comes from obeying the law, we are in trouble. The proof is in the pudding, and our pudding is not good. No matter how much you know, or how much religious associations and actions and symbols you've accumulated, we are still in need of the gospel. So let's look at now how Paul redefines the true Jew, the true member of God's covenant. He gives a fourfold distinction. They'll be up in front of you. Number one, the essence of being a true Jew is not something outward and visible, but inward and invisible. Two, the circumcision is in the heart, not the flesh. It is affected by the spirit, not the law. And fourth, it wins the approval of God and not human beings. So the ultimate sign of covenant membership with God was not religious knowledge nor circumcision, but obedience, which both the law and circumcision demanded. So this is not salvation that is because of your obedience. This is obedience that comes from being saved. Uh, there was an equation I kind of shared the last time I spoke. Let me just try and place it together again. If you want a short and sweet explanation of this. You do what you are. Premise one. Two is you are what you love. Therefore, you do what you love. So like we've been saying this whole time, the problem is our hearts. It's what we love. And God promises to give us a new heart, to enact this transformation. This is what he says, Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. What Paul is looking for here is a circumcision of the heart that completely replaces the physical demands of obedience. It doesn't even complement them. If you look here where he says, uh, not by the letter, which is grammar, but by the spirit, which is pneuma, this basically summarizes the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. So here's my question for you. Where does your confidence lie? If your confidence and right standing before God is based upon how much you know or how much you do, you're in trouble. This is where our hope for salvation lies. I'm going to jump ahead to Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But for the believer watching this, maybe where this hits home for me most is a Christian who has faltered in their obedience. And you're wondering, I've messed up. Does this change my right standing with God? How can I have assurance of my salvation? If this eats away at you, can I, can I give a word of comfort? I like Peter in, in the, the Gospels. He's uh, someone that I can really relate to. He seems to do everything wrong. When he's enthusiastic, he's too enthusiastic. Jesus is in the garden. Some soldiers come. Peter chops off a guy's ear. I will defend you. Jesus says, no, Peter, and he heals the ear. He puts it back on. Later, Peter says to Jesus, I am loyal. 
I will never leave you. I'm sticking with you to the end. And Jesus says, you will deny me three times before the the cock crows in the morning. Okay, so Jesus is then taken. He's crucified. He's resurrected. And when they meet up again, Jesus and Peter, you could imagine that would be a little bit awkward, right? Peter's probably feeling this whole commotion of emotions inside. He's happy to see Jesus, but he's ashamed of what he's done. He's embarrassed about how he denied Jesus three times. This is what Jesus says to him. He asks him, do you love me? Peter's unsure about where his standing is with Jesus now because he's faltered in his following of Jesus. Jesus asks him this, do you love me? So I can ask you the same question. Do you love him? When we see this here, Paul is asking probing questions that can hurt, but they bring healing. And there is one right response to this, and that is humility. Because no matter how much I know and how much I do, I can't scrub out my sin. So for those who are in Christ, this is just a healthy reminder. Our knowledge and our religious associations and actions, these are not for our salvation with God. These flow from our salvation with God. And for the non-believer, this should be concerning, but it's also an invitation to relief. What you do and what you know will never be enough to earn you right standing with God. And so you will always be stuck under this impossible standard of trying to be enough. But there is one who was enough. One who took our place and one who offers us right standing with God through him. A righteousness that is apart from the law.